This episode is a part of our series to unveil the venture capital industry. Check out our other episodes and stay tuned for more. Today, we're joined by Charles Birnbaum on the show. Charles is a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, where he invests in early stage and promising financial services, consumer, and education companies in the U.S. and Europe. Some of his portfolio highlights include Alloy, Brightwheel, Lithic, and Shift. Prior to joining Bessemer in 2013, Charles was one of the earliest team members at Foursquare, the location-based mobile application and social network. He also spent time in investment banking and equity capital markets, focusing on the telecom, technology, and media sectors. Charles earned his MBA from the Wharton School, a Master's of Arts in International Studies from the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Bachelor's of Arts in History from Northwestern University. Welcome to Wharton Tech Talks. Today, we're joined by Charles. We're so excited to host you today, Charles, and especially great to hear from a Wharton alumni. Great to be here. Before you get started on the actual podcast content, I am very curious. You did the Lauder to a degree at Wharton, right? What language did you study when you were at Lauder? I happened to speak German. So I did the German track. There were five of us in my class. There are years where I think it's as few as two, but it was a pretty amazing experience. I studied undergrad in Germany as well when I was a history German double major as an undergrad. So I was able to dust off the old German and reapply to Lauder when I was coming out of my time on Wall Street. I was excited to kind of make business school a little more interesting. Very fun. And you started your career in capital markets, as you were kind of mentioning. When did you realize that you wanted to go into venture investing? Really early on, but I didn't know how or what the path would be. I just remember I started on Wall Street when the market was really slow. It was kind of just coming out of the doldrums of the dot-com burst and kind of just picking up again. And ultimately, I got placed in the tech group. So I got to work on tech deals right away. And actually, one of the first things I ever worked on was the Google IPO pitch on the equity capital markets desk to date myself. And I just kind of always loved the companies. And part of the job when you're an investment banker is spending time with folks like us now, where you're trying to get a sense for some of the more exciting portfolio companies. You can build relationships super early on. So you're well positioned when there's an M&A event or potential IPO process. Like if you're finding out about the company six months before an IPO process, it's too late. So we used to just spend time going up and down Sand Hill Road and meeting with venture capitalists. And I was like, wow, that seems like a cool way to spend a career. How do I do that? When I got to Wharton, I spent most of my time thinking about like, how do I complement the finance experience with some more real life experience working at these companies. That was like all I focused on when I got to school. I was just looking for someone at an interesting startup to give me a chance to get some of that experience. Awesome. And how did you find your way to Bessemer? And when did you start focusing on fintech investing? Uh, It was pure luck in the end. So while I identified 20 years ago that I wanted to do this, I didn't really actually have a plan on how to do it. I just figured that being in the technology scene and actually working at interesting companies, perhaps starting a company was like the best next step. So that was my focus. I didn't recruit for a second at venture firms when I was in business school. I ended up getting an internship during the summer in between at Foursquare, which at the time was not yet well known. There was probably eight or nine people at the company. They had raised 
a couple million bucks. And it was a really interesting startup here in New York City. It was on a short list of companies I wanted to work at and ended up working there for another two years after business school full time. And I was heads down kind of working on a lot of exciting stuff there. And there was an opportunity here in the New York office at Bessemer at the associate level to mentor under one of the general partners whose name was Rob Stavis, who's Wharton undergrad alum himself, 20 years before me. And I just kind of jumped at the opportunity to learn and be mentored. I didn't really think much about it. So it came more by chance. And the way I came to focus on fintech was he was really a pioneer in investing in disruptive financial services models before it was trendy. He actually had run the fixed income arbitrage desk at Solomon Brothers before a second career in venture. Between his network, being based in New York City, someone who had used technology and software to arbitrage fixed income securities in the 90s and early 2000s, it was natural for him. And he had done things like Gerson Lehrman Group and Zopa, which was like the first peer-to-peer lender that ever existed, Betterment at the Series A, before a lot of other venture firms thought these categories were interesting. I just fell into it. And then there was like a 10-year explosion of entrepreneurial activity in the space, and it was a great place to be for that. That's awesome. I am curious, do you think your time spent on Wall Street helped you deepen your understanding of financial services and help you form your investment thesis in the area? Yeah, I mean, financial services is so many different markets, so many different sub-markets. Fixed income asset management is so different than long short equity hedge funds, so different than the mortgage space or commercial insurance is so different than life insurance. I mean, each element, like you pull on one of these threads and you could spend many years going deep and becoming an expert. So I feel like I'm an expert in none of them. And I've been at this for 10 and a half years now. I think you just have to have like the longer you spent doing it in practice, the more you realize how much depth there is to each of the markets. And you back early stage companies that are disrupting one of these fields. And it's all about the founder market fit and respecting the why now question, right? Why does this not exist? Like there's so many big, messy structural reasons usually that a company doesn't exist in fintech or financial services. And you have to get comfortable with those big questions before taking a swing. The history gives me a respect for how hard it is, but it doesn't necessarily make me an expert in any of them. That makes sense. And fast forward 10 and a half years, you are still at Bessemer. We are now a partner focused on financial services amongst other things. You recently authored the five waves of fintech earlier this year. Zoe and I have obviously read it, but for the audience, could you tell us a little bit about those five ways of fintech? And then if there's a particular one you're excited about? Yeah, that was more of a piece where it was like, I've been doing this for 10 years and I was reflecting a little bit internally on what was next before you think about what was next. And maybe this is because I was a student of history. I actually think a lot of what we do in venture is very similar to the study of history. It's like you look at the past to try and understand the present, predict the future. And I don't think predicting the future is actually possible. So I just think understanding what has happened before is the best method. And most things in financial services tend to come in these waves. So we tried to characterize them as waves. Sometimes they're led by regulatory changes. Sometimes it's just interest rate shocks like what we're living through right now. And what we did was just try and bucket those waves into some 
neat categories, which are probably not that accurate because nothing's that simple or neat. But the first way we talked about just like business model innovation, which is still happening, but I think it happened pretty dramatically in kind of like around the 2008 to 2013 time period where the incumbents were kind of shattered by the lack of confidence that the public had after the financial crisis. And there was a chance for new brands to be created, starting with a very specific point solution, whether it was SoFi with student lending, arbitrage, or Robinhood with free trading, or Betterment with the concept of democratizing access to financial products for diversified equity portfolios. Like There were these unique insights that entrepreneurs had where you could kind of start there and then build a multifaceted financial services business over time. And that was also kind of led into the unbundling of financial services, which came next, which those companies also pioneered. And then there was like an opportunity really for the rebundling to then take place and all the software companies like we saw outside of financial services to facilitate that. And I invested in a bunch of companies which really sell APIs to the market. So well-known examples like Stripe and Plaid outside of our portfolio and then companies inside our portfolio like Alloy and Lithic and earlier stage ones like Basis Theory that are offering critical infrastructure that you can build upon now and not need as much capital as SoFi and Robinhood and Betterment needed to get going. So there was this wave of kind of infrastructure and rebundling, and those were kind of the next set of of startup experiences that we witnessed and are now pretty enduring companies in many ways. And then we talk about just some of the boring stuff, which is industry-specific software. Like you can go deep and spend quite a bit of time like just finally bringing these industries into the cloud. So things like the property and casualty insurance market or the mortgage market, they're still not really that far along in their digital transformation. And we want to talk about crypto and AI and decentralization and all these things, but a lot of these companies are still using manual workflows and pen and paper. And there was just an opportunity to do that. There's like this ongoing wave that started several years ago, but all of those first companies like the Robin Hoods and Betterments of the world have forced the incumbents to adopt the cloud more quickly than they were. And these are not things that happen fast. I mean, financial services and healthcare are both super slow industries to move to the digital world. And then more recently, it's been kind of the next wave where we defined them, I think, as orchestration layers, if I remember. I think that's the nerdy term we used. Because there's so many solutions out there now, there's a pretty valuable place to sit in financial services where you build an important product that delivers for the customer by giving you access to all the solutions that have been created in a manageable way that's very specific to your use case, whether that's preventing fraud or facilitating B2B payments or the front end customer experience of approving a loan. Like now there's so many different data providers and solutions out there that there's these layers getting built to allow both startups and incumbents to kind of leverage it all quickly. And then we talk about what we're excited about going forward, which is the intersection of healthcare and fintech, things focused on solving the problems of the aging populations in the developed economy world and many others. But we tried to zoom out and I actually more enjoy kind of double clicking and zooming in because I think that's really where more of the interesting nuance happens. It was an attempt to do something a little different. Yeah, it was super fascinating. And I think that was a very nice summary of all of the fascinating changes that have happened in the last 10 years within fintech and all of the exciting trends that will continue 
moving forward. I did want to double click on this piece around rebundling of APIs. As we were mentioning, there's like the stripes and the flight plans of the world. I'm curious, as companies like Stripe and other incumbents continue to build more and more functionality, where do you think is the opportunity for startups in that space? I think in any software market, this is kind of that constant pendulum that swings back and forth. Like you have an opportunity to build something super specific where a company is like, I'm going to spike in executing like this piece of the puzzle, be the best of breed in that, become kind of a market leader for that. And then eventually you either stop there and get acquired or you become a platform yourself and start to expand your own product offering and I think that's where Stripe and Plaid are now with those ambitions to be many more things than what they started as. And I have a few companies myself on that journey where they're kind of becoming multi-product and you want to be the platform that others need to work with if they want to get distribution. And that's the journey of companies like Twilio and Salesforce and other great companies that started doing one thing and do a lot more. So I think that orchestration, that rebundling, it's hard to start there. So I think for a while we saw... At the peak of the frothiness in the market, we saw a lot of startups that were kind of at the beginning trying to be those orchestration layers. And it's really hard. It's really hard to start there. I think you have to earn it over time is what I've observed. And obviously, those companies are so established that you mentioned that I think they have a chance to do it. But it takes both really good product development and kind of listening to your customers and not just growing for the sake of growth. Or you got to make really good acquisitions and kind of buy the best products and teams that fit really nicely with your ecosystem. We had in our own portfolio, like Twilio bought SendGrid, which was very complimentary and a great outcome for both companies over time. Awesome. And as you look forward, what do you think is the most critical challenge you believe fintechs will need to overcome in the next five to 10 years? You're saying just fintechs in general? Yeah. Where do you see what will be the biggest challenges for startups in fintech? It's always been the same and it's distribution. For a while, it was in a zero interest rate period where it was not easy, but easier to raise lots of venture capital. Like You could acquire customers aggressively, even if payback periods were long, and kind of use venture capital dollars to build a customer base and then try and turn that into much more. And some companies have been super successful in doing that. I mean, SoFi, I think, is a really good example of that. They're just a bank now, a full-fledged bank with their name on football stadiums and offering everything from investing products to personal loans to, of course, the student loan refinance product they started with. But without raising a lot of capital, that wasn't possible because they went direct with digital advertising, direct mail, traditional media to build a customer base. I think the challenge for the next generation of fintechs is that that game's over for a period of time because raising capital is much more difficult And I think kind of finding durable distribution channels takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's really where the value gets built. Every once in a while, you can build a product that's 10x or 100x better than the prior experience and come up with an amazing concept. But usually in financial services, it's a limited period of time that you have that advantage until the incumbents just have to react. Schwab and Fidelity and all of those players now offer free trading as well. Robinhood has to offer a lot more, but they use that hook for a long period of time to build a really sizable and loyal user base. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting to see how the industry has moved over time and where you think it's going to be going in the future. 
Now that we've talked a little bit about the investment side of your role, I want to think a little bit more about the portfolio support. How do you go about managing your relationships with your founders? Like, When do you know it's time to be very hands-on versus taking a step back and letting them run with an idea or an initiative? Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. I mean, I have some companies that are just a few people still working on finding product market fit. And I have some companies that are a few thousand people trying to navigate a very large business through a new higher interest rate environment. For the former, you cannot help them find product market fit. You've backed at the seed stage or kind of that early stage period. Usually you have a point of view on the market opportunity and you really found that team to be really compelling. So you just have to let them cook and listen. And if there's specific questions they come with and you catch up regularly and you just listen and If there are specific questions, you can help them maybe not waste a period of time trying something that you've already seen someone else try. You can weigh in, but you don't tell them what to do. Then once there's traction, a lot of it is around helping entrepreneurs figure out the team they need for that phase. And it's hard because usually you have to move on from some people that helped you get to that first phase. Some people grow into those roles. Some people don't. So again, it's about listening. And really reacting to both what you see in the performance of the business, but also you interact with as much of the team as you can to then give the founders some feedback on maybe this particular role and set of experiences would like give you more leverage and help you unlock the next level. So a lot of it's about the right team and the right structure and also helping them understand what it's going to take for future investors to get excited because you have that perspective that they don't have. Because that's always changing. Like that's just a moving target. I always tell our junior folks that start at the firm, either right at college or like I did as an associate with zero investing experience, like they don't necessarily have a much weaker perspective on the market conditions than I do because it's always changing. It's like the data we have comes in every Monday when we're talking about deals and what we see in the market. It's just very different than it was when I joined a long time ago. So it's a little bit that stage. In the later stage, it's usually about you're part of a more substantial board of directors. And usually you have to kind of read the room, understand the role you can play. Sometimes I'm more supportive because there's people are being pretty harsh on the team. And sometimes there's no one asking hard questions and you have to step up and play that role. So it's a lot of reacting to the situation, but we don't run these companies. I mean, I think as a minority investor, you have to have the mentality that you backed a set of entrepreneurs to do it and you have to coach them and support them as best you can, but you can't run the company. I mean, I worked at a startup for a few years, but as someone who's never built a company myself, I think it's easier for me to listen and let them run the business than it is for some former CEOs I've seen who've become investors and can see it's hard for them to do that. Yeah, it makes sense how every company is different. So it does take a little bit of practice makes perfect to get things right. Are there any common traps you find founders fall into? Yes. Well, one, people don't hire CFOs early enough. That's one consistent trend because it always feels like you're not ready for it. I want to spend the money on somebody with that level of experience, but a great CFO pays for themselves. And I've seen that kind of over and over again, that you want that earlier on. And I'd say a second would just be taking too much feedback from external factors and not just really focusing on their own unique market and their own business. So I think zooming out too much sometimes and kind of comparing themselves to others, that can be pretty destructive in life in general. But I think particularly in the startup world, I think you want to let some of the people around the business give you that perspective, but not waste too much time yourself 
doing that. And then just that team development, it's really hard to do. And it's easy to say, but it's really hard to do is to kind of move on from executives that you've outgrown. In a high growth business, it's rarely going to be the same group that you started with that takes you all the way. So it's usually in those transitions that a first-time founder makes a lot of mistakes. And it's more that you just waste time. It's not like you kill the business, but there's a lot of time wasted and kind of not accepting that you've moved past someone's experience level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially that second point you brought up. I think it goes back to what you were saying before. Like, it's great to get advice from different people and to have different soundboards. But at the end of the day, like you are the founder and you're responsible for growing the company and have to kind of trust what you think is best. Thinking back to also my own experience working as a software engineer in finance, I know we were always thinking about risk management and that was a key priority for us, trying to ensure that data is kept safe and money is being protected largely. So I'm curious from your perspective, how are you advising your companies to find a balance between risk protection and compliance versus innovating and trying new things? Yeah, in fintech and financial services, that's a really tricky balance because I don't think you can have them in like the Uber mentality of like break things and deal with it later from a regulatory perspective. Like it's too dangerous. So I think you just have to have compliance and as a core competency and kind of risk as a core competency. I mean, if you're a software vendor to the industry, it's a little different. But I have some companies like a company called Farther in the wealth management space that is a RIA firm that's tech enabled and we have a chief compliance officer. He opens up the meeting with a section for the board. And for even as an early stage business, that hire was full time. That's not something you outsource. There are some businesses that you just need compliance to be at the forefront and others where it's more about what your customers expect. So from a SOC 2 you know, security compliance perspective, if you're going to be selling software to banks or insurance companies, like there's a different level of expense. And for the same reason, it kind of makes some of these businesses a good fit for venture capital because there's some upfront cost and getting off the ground before you can really see the operating leverage in your business. So it's not the fun stuff, but if you're in financial services or healthcare, like you can't dismiss it. Yeah. I think that goes back to even some of what we talked about much earlier in this podcast about regulation. Like you just got to follow the rules sometimes. (laughs) Moving on to thinking a little bit more about just some general career advice what would you say is the most underrated skill for someone to have in VC? Ah, it's really a question. There's so many different things. I mean, one is, is just communicating, both listening and communicating your own point of view in a way that's constructive. So whether it's internally getting your own colleagues or your investment committee to be supportive on taking risk or in a boardroom trying to influence other directors and an executive team to a better place that you think they're not heading in. You constantly have to be listening, communicating, and kind of reading other people and trying to find ways to have influence. I think that's really the most important thing. There's a lot of table stakes skills in venture, like being able to understand financial reports and read a profit and loss statement and kind of do some of those forensics. That's basic and you need to do it. And a lot of people don't spend enough time on that, but I would put that in the table stakes category. And then it's also, I think, just about really having a contrarian point of view. The only way to really make money is to have a different point of view than other people, which is a very hard thing to do in practice. And sometimes just takes time to kind of get that level of conviction. That would be some of the things that come top of mind. 
Yeah, those are both really, really great things to work on. Did you happen to take influence or negotiations while you were at Wharton? Not only did I take negotiations, I think it was the best class I took. Oh, nice. And I took it with a very young Adam Grant. I think I was the second class he ever taught, maybe first, either first or second class he ever taught. I stumbled into it because I didn't have enough points for Stuart Diamond's class. I ended up in Adam's class and it was by far the best experience. He's still a friend to this day. I remember sitting in his office. He helped me negotiate my deal. As I mentioned, I was working at a startup in between the two years I ended up working throughout the second year and I was trying to negotiate a package with them and he helped me with that. And pretty cool to see his success and he's become such a celebrity now. Yeah, that's actually a pretty iconic anecdote. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good one. Yeah. Thinking about students or just professionals in general who are looking to work at a startup, what would you recommend that they look out for? Well, one is just never judge a book by its cover. You got to do some diligence on any company that you find interesting. So I always say do the job like that what we're doing, which is you got to meet a lot of companies to pick the one you want to spend time with or invest in for a 10-year time period. So start with a longer list, make it a shorter list, and then try and get to the bottom of what's really happening at those companies. And I think through that process, you'll both learn a lot about the space, the companies, and yourself. And I think you try and meet with as many people that currently work there, ideally talk to one or two that used to work there that don't work there anymore, the kind of things I do before I invest. I think just really getting different perspectives. And some companies are really sleepy from the outside and really amazing from the inside. And some companies are really sparkling from the outside and pretty ugly inside. I just say kind of do your diligence as best you can. Awesome. Well, when we finish up our episodes, we like to do a few fun rapid fire questions. Don't think, just speak. I think Cynthia will kick us off. Your challenge is to answer in two sentences or less. First question, what is your favorite quote? I usually go with a Yogi Berra. So we've been talking about venture. He has one about predictions. It is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Nice. I love that one. If you could teleport anywhere right now, where would you go? Japan. I haven't been to Japan in 20 years. I love everything Japanese culture and food, and I want to take my family there, but I don't want to go on the plane with my six-year-old yet. Mm, Hopefully in a few years. Best book you've read recently? I'm not a great reader, I have to admit. I have very little time and I don't make enough time to read it. The last book I enjoyed reading was a reread. It's a book I kind of revisit from time to time. There's a historian named Niall Ferguson who wrote a book called The Ascent of Money. And it's very much about, I kind of came back to it when I was trying to understand from first principles, what was happening in the crypto space. And it's just a book I keep coming back to different chapters. It's like history repeats itself when you think through kind of the way money has changed over time. All right. Last but not least, what is your boldest prediction for the next five to 10 years, even if it seems like a total moonshot to everyone else? I think this first wave of AI companies is going to be like a major shakeout. And I think the real enduring companies have yet to be formed in many ways. I'm very excited about the long-term trends, but I think there's a lot of earthquakes still happening under people's feet as they build right now. Nice. Yeah, we've definitely seen some mixed perspectives on AI. I definitely think there is some more development that we need to see there. Amazing. Cool. 
So that wraps up our interview for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Charles. We're looking forward to seeing what you invest in next and how Bessemer continues to grow. All right. Thank you both. Thank you.